High-performing teams have human leadership. Human leadership creates trust, purpose, and belonging at all levels. We've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership. Find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Welcome to We Are Human Leaders. All of us want to be recognized, to be seen and valued. But for many, this is far from our actual experience. Can dignity and respect fix our workplaces and bring a sense of worth for those who feel lost, hopeless, forgotten and ignored? And amid countless conversations surrounding inequity and DEI efforts, how can we as leaders truly promote social inclusion? I'm Sally Clark. And today, Alexis Anna and I are speaking with Harvard professor and sociologist Michelle Lamont, who has studied dignity and worth for decades. In her inspiring new book, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World, she makes a persuasive research-driven case for prioritizing recognition and respect in an inequitable society. We explore what we can learn from the change agents who are transforming representation We understand what ordinary universalism is and how this can impact us at work. And Michelle shares some practical ways that we can start to drive recognition today. Michelle illuminates an inclusive path forward with new ways of understanding our world and our humanity. Let's dive in. Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast, Michelle. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. And we'd like to begin by getting to know you a little bit more and understanding your story and the journey that's brought you to this important work that you're doing now. Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the title of your podcast. Uh, The listener will understand even more why as they discover what my book is about. So what should I say? Well, I'm a professor of sociology, African-American studies at Harvard, and I'm also an expert on Europe. I wrote a few books comparing France and the U.S. And also a big comparative book on experiences of racism in the US, Brazil, and Israel. And I'm also the mother of three Gen Zs, which is important for the purpose of this book, since as we will see, there's a lot of the book that's about the conversation between boomers and Gen Zs. For those who don't know, Gen Zs are young people who were born after 97 or so. So right now they're between 20 and 25, 30, and they're really thinking very hard about what to do with their lives. And I live in Boston. I'm Canadian which is also important to know because I think I'm writing about American society as an insider slash outsider because I've lived here since 83. I lived in France for three, four years before coming to the U.S., but I'm very interested in how to promote collective well-being through the kind of society we create. It sounds like you personally have quite an interesting intersectionality of your experiences culturally as well, Michelle. Growing up in Canada, I assume, and then was it like a move to France or how did that look for you? Yes. 
Yes. The introduction explains a little bit how my own personal experience led me to write this book. So I grew up in Quebec during the peak of the independence movement, which was very much a moment where I the French Canadians were in the process of redefining their collective identity. They used kind of the state as a tool, a, a economic engine to um, affirm their independence in relation to English Canada. So it was really a period of economic and uh, cultural growth of really denouncing the ways in which we had been victim of British colonialism and then English Canadian colonialism. And then I went to France where I had friends from all parts of the world who had survived, you know, difficult episodes. I had a friend, actually a boyfriend, who had kind of survived the dictatorship in Brazil and had many friends imprisoned. And uh, I had a neighbor who had survived the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, these were the late 70s. They were very much moments where many people were talking about American imperialism. And then I got a fellowship as a postdoc to go to Stanford University. And I didn't know that much about American universities. So I really discovered I got there just as as uh, Silicon Valley was taking off with, you know, the introduction of yuppie culture in California. Suddenly you could find good croissant, which was quite a revolution, you know. The society was changing and people were buying extremely expensive bicycles and cars. And so, I mean, these early, until the age of 25, basically, I was exposed to very different environment. And later on, when I was 45, I was asked by Canadian Foundation to co-lead a very important research group called the Successful Societies Program that was subsidized by the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And the purpose of that group was very much to think it was a large group of like 15, 20 scholars from different disciplines. And we were asked to pull our tools together to try to reflect collectively about how to create uh, successful societies defined in terms of collective well-being, you know. How can we imagine the conditions for society that would allow more people to prosper together? So that really led me to want to write this book on recognition, which is really about how to broaden the circle of who matters and who is seen in our society. And I think this is such an incredibly relevant topic for all of us who are listening right now, and certainly in the context of business and work, how we work, because it is such an important component of our experience within our societies, Michelle. And I'd love to start just by understanding from your perspective, you know, in a nutshell, how would you define recognition and why does how we define recognition matter? Yeah, well, to go to the, you know, a real shortcut, I happen to have an apple here. So as I say in the book, it's not about, oh, I recognize that this is an apple on the table, or I recognize that this is Jim on the street. It's really about this capacity that human beings have to give value to each other, to see each other, to make each other feel valued. And this is something that only humans can make do for human beings. So since your podcast focuses on work life, I mean, what happens when you remove human beings from the equation when more and more people are working with AI and are being, you know, evaluated by algorithms? So that's a big question, I presume, for your listeners. So it's really about my book, more specifically, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a sociologist, although I recognize the importance of things like mindfulness or, you know, really intracranial things you can do to make yourself and others calmer and more happy. I'm more focused on how can we create a society that provides us messaging to broaden recognition and reduce stereotype and stigma. So the book is based on 185 interviews, which change agents who are people who through their work are creating new narratives. So that includes, you know, Hollywood creative and stand-up comics and people who are working in advocacy and, you know, 
leaders like the leader of Patreon, the guy who created Patreon, which diffuses the creative work a great many people. So it crosses many policy domains as well. And then there's also 80 interviews with Gen Zs who are college students in the Midwest, in the US, and also on the East Coast. And when we interviewed them, it was fall of uh, 2019 and during the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 to see what were the challenges that they were experiencing and also how were they projecting themselves into the future in terms of their ideals and what kind of society they would like to live in and uh, how do they imagine a good life. Such an interesting exploration that you've undertaken in really clarifying, I think, what recognition can mean for different generations, for different sort of segments of society. And just to give it a little bit more of a practical sort of grounding, Michelle, how do you sort of explain recognition in an, almost a sort of an example? How might we imagine recognition looking, for example, for a leader in an organization? For a leader in an organization, it would be to make visible those who are in a corner and always invisible to celebrate not only the highest achievers, but also explain to achievers that it's nice to pat you in the back, but sometimes it's other people's turns. So it's really about distributing a feeling of that you're valued and seen to a wide number of employees, if you will. So when you think about DEI, it's not only about increasing numbers of underrepresented groups, it's very much about making everyone feel dignity and value, not only as producers and, you know, people who help the organization pursue its objective, but also as caregivers, you know, understanding that if you help your workers take care of their children, when they're sick or bring their mother to the doctor when they need it, you know, it creates a much more better quality of life for the workers, but also quite potentially more loyalty toward the organization and a greater commitment for realizing the goals of the organization, if you will. Thank you, Michelle. And I like this language. I heard you say the distribution of the recognition. And it is so often we see, particularly in organizations, a very merit-based distribution of recognition. And I think that's a really helpful way of helping us broaden what recognition needs to look like. Yeah, and I'm not against merit, but often when we embrace the language of meritocracy, we tend to ignore how some people are always on an escalator, in part maybe because they grew up in a middle-class neighborhood with excellent schools or they had parents who were very highly educated. So those who are successful by the society's dominant standard, you know, in terms of degrees or socioeconomic success, they've always often very been beneficiary of a great deal of advantages. So I think we need to nuance the celebration of the meritorious by a much broader consideration and also to only celebrate people who are college educated professionals and managers is sending a message to the vast majority of the population that doesn't have a college degree. And that is something that people often ignore, that they're losers and they feel like losers and they feel very much that society treats them as losers. So that creates a huge tension in American society, but also in many European societies. And we know that, for instance, the series, the entertainment shows that we watch at night, they tend to have many professionals and managers who are always painted as, you know, examples of success that we should aspire to. And it's very hard to see representative of the working class who are celebrated. So that also feeds a lot of the resentment that is behind some of the political polarization that we are experiencing now. So I think it's moment to take stock of this and think about how to address it. Absolutely. And Michelle, for an individual, what is the experience of that? Does that become like an internalized version or vision of self? Can you help us explain what the impact on the individual might be for that? 
Sure. I'll give you an example of one of my graduate students who's trans, and they were explaining to me that as they were growing up, they come from a South Asian family. There was no tools in the environment to make sense of their identity. So clearly they experienced themselves differently than most of the other kids in their class, but they literally didn't have the label or didn't know what that was about, you know? And it's only as they got a little bit older that they realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm not alone. And there's a lot of people like me. So I think what we're witnessing now with, you know, young people insisting on non-binary pronouns or on unisex bathroom, it might seem to many people, oh, this is a snowflake issue, get over it. But for people like this student, it's extremely meaningful to have their identity affirmed publicly and recognized. So I think until people who just make fun of work culture realize that for some people, this is truly an existential matter, just like perhaps the way women, I'm a boomer. So I remember reading the female mystique in the 70s and discovering the word stereotyping. And I didn't know at all what the stereotype was and to discover that it existed and that women were stereotyped as, you know, less intelligent, more passive, good caregivers, but not too good, not too bright, you know. I mean, it really gave me the tools to make sense of what was happening in my life. I love my family. It's a terrific family, but it was a sexist family. So, you know, I had to do the dishes every day and my brother mowed the lawn once a month and it was viewed as perfectly fine. So I really had to fight against this. So I feel like in some ways, the literature from second wave feminism really gave me, Betty Friedan and many others gave me the tool to fight for myself and, you know, being becoming aware of where those messages messages that are making you feel bad about yourself or depressed or passive, or you feel like you really feel that people are not treating you well and you don't understand why. Well, if this environment gives us narratives, different ways of understanding ourselves, it can really be beneficial to the individual, but also to groups. So it's not only a micro individual thing. It's also about transforming the meaning associated with groups that feel that they have been undervalued. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience there, Michelle. And I think for me, I feel like there is this sort of level of awareness of my own privilege, but that the more I explore, I keep encountering new layers in which that manifests and new ways in which I hadn't actually been aware that that actually worked in my favor. And it sort of feels like a bit of a continuous journey in that sense. Is that sort of how it works from your perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of what we take for granted is often invisible to us, right? What part of reality is in the background and in the foreground depends very much on um, what surrounds us, what messaging is possible around us. So that goes for what kind of neighborhood you're raising your kids. And, you know, there's such a, although I'm a sociologist and I'm an expert on class and racial boundaries, I've written several books on this. I still discover new layers that I was not fully aware of. It uh, To really understand what it means, I think it takes a lot of exposure to people who don't live in your reality. And actually, I had an interesting experience recently, which is I have twins who are 22. My son has a wonderful girlfriend who comes from a working class family. And it's been very interesting to have my son reflect to me about the privileges that he's had growing up because he comes from upper middle class family. And he's becoming much more aware of that from this daily contact with his girlfriend. So it's very interesting. I think it's layers upon layers upon layers. It's so deeply structured.
captures our reality. It takes a while to get it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Michelle, you mentioned that in the research for your most recent book, you'd spoken to numerous change agents in sort of the business environment as well, or cultural entrepreneurs, as you call them, who intentionally aim to transform how we perceive differences in others. What can business leaders who want to make change in their organization learn from some of these change agents? Well, two change agents that I talk in particular about are Oprah Winfrey and Marcus Stewart. I mean, they're both models who are certainly, you know, icons of capitalism, extremely successful women, but each of them have tried to destigmatize specific groups as they were in the process of making money. So Martha Stewart, her audience was very much working class women who aim to improve themselves. And the way they would do it is by becoming excellent middle-class homemakers. So she told them how you can have, you know, set up a very nice table for a Sunday dinner or, you know, do a lot to prettify your domestic environment. And for many women, those were tools of self-empowerment. I mean, at the same time as culturally, often homemakers had been put down. So it's paradoxical that she was able to both affirm the role of, you know, the as an area where women could gain a sense of dignity and self-esteem. And she did it while making money herself. And of course, we know the rest of the story, you know, how she was put in prison, etc. But nevertheless, she can't stand. She does certainly stand as an example of all of this. And it tells also for Oprah Winfrey with her denunciation of domestic violence and, uh, you know, as a survivor of violence as well, and her being out about this and giving women who had suffered the same fate tools to make sense of their experience and to not just think of themselves as victim, but uh, giving them the tool that they need to gain a sense of their own agency and create the life that they want. So those are two excellent examples. I think as for employers in general, I think really celebrating not only the workers who are the most productive or the most competitive, but also those who are often invisible, you know, sitting in the offices that are back there in the corner and who often do a lot of the emotional work necessary to keep an organization going. So not only shining a light on the big stars, but really adopting a much more pluralistic set of standard to figure out who should be celebrated and what a range of people bring to the workplace. Yeah. And it sounds, Michelle, as Sally mentioned as well, you know, obviously being a white female, there are certain privileges I've been afforded my entire life. It sounds like as a leader, there needs to be this cognizant moment of perspective shift of noticing those who we perhaps haven't noticed in the past. Do you have any insights for a leader in terms of sort of unpacking their own, whether it's bias or or what needs to happen for us on an individual level to start noticing some of the things perhaps we were ignoring or taking for granted with recognition in the past? Oh, yes. I'm sure that many women who are listening had supervisors who uh, engage in what sociologists call homophily, which means basically feeling closer culturally and more approving or people who are like you. So if you're a middle-aged white man and you relate better to the other middle-aged white men around you, you're much more likely to pat them on the back and ask them to go for a beer or whatever, all this social oil, the glue that makes, creates solidarity. But if you're a supervisor, you really need to be able to relate to a wide range of people. So that would certainly mean, you know, taking time to talk with the workers with whom you share less and try to understand where they come from. And also what are the challenges that they are encountering in their lives that can be very different. So I think if you include in 
the duties of the middle level manager to give dignity to everyone and including not it's not only a question of numbers to have more diversified web workforce it's also very much a question of making sure that all the employees feel like they are listened to and that their needs are acknowledged and if they need to bring their old mother to the doctor on a Thursday afternoon they can have time to do this you know and this kind of work really pays off in the sense that you have workers who are more committed to the workplace, who treat the workplace more like home and are more likely to go the extra mile as well. And it sounds like, Michelle, you mentioned this example of, you know, perhaps taking someone for a beer as like a way to say thank you or get close to them. It sounds as well there's this element of learning to relate to people in different ways outside of our typical comfort zone and how we might, you know, build friendships or build connection to other people as well. Exactly. And it's not necessarily going for the beer itself. Maybe the middle-aged male doesn't want to ask the young woman for beer for obvious reason. But there's other ways of engaging people around their leisure activity and asking them, did you have a good weekend? You know, are you hanging out with your family? What are you doing? I think the pressures of productivity often prevents people from taking time to do this. So Absolutely. And yet there's so much, you know, research these days to show that taking that time and creating those bonds, and you've used the word dignity a couple of times as well, Michelle. And I think that's such a key part of, you know, it's such an important outcome that leaders can drive through ensuring that their behavior really is around taking the time to connect and understand and holding space for an experience that might be different from their own. Now you touched earlier on the concept of meritocracy. And I just wanted to dig deeper in this notion for a second, because I really think, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that we can make that are around work and about an even playing field. And that, you know, this concept that's very, think, embedded in American society, but also in Australian and many others as well, that simply a lot of hard work, if we just work hard, a particular outcome will arise, some success will manifest. And I'd love to hear from you what you see as being the danger in that. It's still a very persistent narrative. How is that hurting us? And and what narrative might me best shift to? Well, I think it's a narrative that very much connects success to moral worth. So as you just said, people who are viewed as successful are people who are presumed to have better discipline, work ethic, all kinds of things that are coded as morally valuable. And at the apex of the system are the college-educated professional and managers who still make up a minority of the overall population. And we are celebrating meritocracy. We also implicitly put down those who don't have the college degree, which is the majority of the population. So in the book, the first two chapters really kind of draw what's happening with the American dream in the context of growing inequality in the U.S. and many other advanced industrial societies where many workers feel very much that they're left behind and the ways in which the upper middle class is very self-congratulatory at the same time as it really suffers from its obsession with work because after 2008 you will remember many people lost their job the middle class many people became extremely anxious about their kids being downward immobile so there's been really a steady increase in the level of anxiety and feeling overwhelmed even among the top 20 percent of the population so now we are in a regime where even the most you know successful members of society feel that they're in a very bad place in terms of mental health. It's a society-wide crisis, more much more in the U.S. than the U.K., by the way. And they've also put a lot of pressure 
around their children. So you've had books that have been published like Excellent Sheep, you know, or A Helicopter Parenting, which is all about parenting going amok because the pressure that is put on the kids is enormous. And for those of us who teach college are very aware how much time we're now spending dealing with the mental health of undergrads. And at UCLA, you have a center that produces annually a survey of first-year undergrads, and they are able to show a constant increase in the number of them who feel overwhelmed and suffering from anxiety. So I think this means... If you look in particular at Gen X, they go on, they get on the job market around the, the depression, the Great Recession of 2008, and they quickly realize that, you know, a house is not within reach for them. So organizing their life toward the accumulation and the goods and the, getting the white picket fence and all the whole deal is not realistic for them, but also they don't want it in part because they don't want it. Many of them don't want it because they're very critical of overconsumption. So they talk about the hedonistic treadmill of consumption, which is destroying our planet. So the Gen Zs whom we've interviewed for the book, clearly given this confluence of mental health crisis and the lack of the weak belief in the American dream, they have to come up with new dreams. So the book argues that in order for them to find hope, they turn towards something that is much more reachable. And for them, often this means trying to create a life that is more organized around inclusion and living a good life now, which means creating a good community and a community of people who care for each other, where people don't have to be in the closet, either as first gen or as queer or whatever, you know, and people should publicly live in a way that is in line with their values. And I think many Gen Zs and millennials are very committed to that. And you have a kind of cultural gulf between the boomers who often don't understand why they're, the woke culture of young people is taking place. They just don't understand where it comes from. And I think once you understand that the ideals that have animated the boomer generation is meaningless for those young people, it makes much more sense. And it allows, I think, to create boundaries or create bridges, rather, between generations that are really, really needed. So, And that's done in part through these change agents whom we've interviewed. So the book talks about, for instance, I did an interview with a person named Joy Soloway, who's the creator of the show Transparent. And the, the transparent, the main uh, character is advanced middle-aged trans woman who has recently transitioned and she has to get her kids on board. She has adult children who are really pissed that their father is now a woman. And, you know, what you witness in the show is how she negotiates this new relationship. And the show helps the viewer go beyond the stereotype and understand the person in a three-dimensional way and to humanize the person and to really help people move away from the stereotypes and the negativity. So, uh, And that is the creation of new narratives that offers alternative reality. And it's happening through our society at so many levels with very deep consequences, I think. Mm. Michelle, I can't say how thankful I am to hear someone of a different generation to myself. I'm a millennial. Unpack that for us with more depth because I think that I'm very used to hearing terms like entitlement and instant gratification and, you know, that we should expect things to fall into our lap within my generation. And it feels, you know, there are days where it genuinely feels quite hopeless as a millennial. You know, we've been sold the candy of get a university education and everything else will work out. And effectively for many of us, we've got a lot of student debt. We're extremely educated. You know, I've got a master's degree, which doesn't get necessarily applied all that often on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet 
in the last five years alone, I've seen the cost of housing in my local region double. I've seen the cost of electricity, the cost of cars, everything else increase. And it feels like sometimes it doesn't matter how hard I work, things keep slipping out of grasp for many of us. So I just appreciate you taking the time to help us unpack that and also help us understand why it might be that different generations are putting their preferences for what meaningfulness looks like or what a good life looks like elsewhere when the things that we've been told in the past to prioritize actually feel a little bit out of reach for many of us. Exactly. I have a graduate student whose dissertation is comparing the college-educated young people in their 30s who experience precarity in Boston and Madrid. And in many ways, the experience is very different because the cost of living in the two places is different. In the U.S., they experience a very high housing costs, college education, and health care costs. And they cannot expect their parents to tell them move in for five years. Whereas in Spain, in contrast, they really think and they are right that their parents are going to host them for five years. And the, the desires and the hope, how they imagine that they're going to get themselves out of the situation they find themselves is very, very different. With the uh, young people in Boston feeling very much that all they need is more money, even if it means like getting two jobs or three jobs so that they can make more money. And they don't, in some ways, I think they're more hopeless because they cannot see, you know, a way ahead. So, yeah, I relate to that experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad that it's useful to you, Alex. <laughs> I have to say also, Michelle, I felt a little bit recognized as a Gen Xer as well, because there was certainly that moment of disenchantment for me and many of my peers, you know, around the 2008 and even earlier, I think, around this idea of what the, you know, and I didn't grow up in the American dream, but what we'd kind of been taught to expect was simply not going to be our reality. And there's a very optimistic part of me that thinks, well, that means you know, there is potential for us to change our expectations to be different and better. But I also don't want to, you know, dilute the fact that for a lot of people, it's a really confronting and quite intense feeling of being betrayed almost that this idea that we've been pulled along with, as it were, is simply false. So it's a very interesting space that we find ourselves in today. Yeah. And do you think that your generation is also looking a little bit at inclusion and ways to create a better life now as a response to the dead? that you've encountered? I think so, Michelle. That's, I really appreciate that question. I think I find it difficult to speak for my generation, but I do certainly think that there is a sense, I think partly because a lot of us in Gen Xers grew up in a time before the internet existed and there is a kind of awareness that we're missing community to some extent. So I think there's perhaps for us maybe more of a focus, not so much on the individual pursuits and ownership of material possessions that drives us, but more of a sense of where are our connections and how connected are we staying and are we present in our lives to the extent that's possible. Yeah, the social media is sure are doing a number on people. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's another dimension altogether, isn't it? And I think as a millennial, we sort of grew up on the cusp of both. I distinctly remember going through school in my young years with no computers, like that wasn't a thing, certainly not mobile phones. And then by the time we'd finished high school, you know, we'd learned to use the computers. And I think we were allowed, you know, in my household, certainly it was one shared mobile phone if we were away for a sporting trip or something like that. So there's definitely been a quick shift as well in my 32 years of life around what socialization looks like and what connection to other human beings look like as well. And I think there's a real performative element to being alive right now, especially through social media that I think adds another layer of pressure around, well, you know, am I doing what 
Instagram expects of me as well. And that's another layer. And I'm sure with Gen Z and the multitude of apps that they have access to now, and of course, we have access to them, but perhaps just by virtue of being born 15 years earlier, it's not something that my social network engages with as much. I imagine that there's another even more intense layer in their experience of sort of how they're projecting themselves into their environment as well. Is that something that you've seen, Michelle, in your work? In the book, I talk about the transformation of the public sphere, which is basically this realm where collective ideas about what life should be are being produced by a number of institutions, but also media, whether the traditional media or the social media. I mean, it's very complex. But I remind the reader that the number of people in the U.S., for instance, who post on social media remains a very small proportion of the population. You know, so much of what we hear about when it comes to the polarization of American society is described as driven by the social media, but many people never use social media or never post on social media. And I think there's a lot of people who are much more into tolerance or indifference, living next to other people and live and let live, than the polarization literature leads us to believe. At the same time, I know that for Gen Zs, it's very intense. Like we're talking now as uh, there's a huge conflict between Hamas and the Israeli government that exploded last week. And my children or Gen Z's were just telling me how much pressure on their campus there is for everyone to post something declaring how they position themselves in the conflict. And I've even read a posting this morning that said, if you're not saying anything, we're taking notice and you will be called upon when, you know, so it's basically threat that if you're not taking a position publicly, you're viewed as uh, either someone who sides with with the Israelis. I don't know exactly what it means, but the veil threat, basically. So that's a lot of pressure for young people who may not have the maturity or the self-confidence to step back and say, don't bully me. I'm going to do what I want, you know. And they live with each other in a dorm. It can be very intense, the uh, the face-to-face. Uh, and I certainly, during the Black Lives Matter, you know, summer of 2020, there was certainly lot of this. So in our interviews with uh, Gen Z's, we've certainly heard a lot about the ways in which the social media can be extremely dangerous in terms of how they think of themselves and their popularity and their need for approval. And that's maximized, I think, also by the use of the dating apps that totally puts them in a position of being, you know, top up, stump down, none all the time, and no capacity to really take distance toward the marketization of beauty and desire that they experience nonstop. So it's such a dehumanizing effect. I think that that can potentially have there. Thank you for highlighting that, Shona. There's a concept that you mentioned in the book as well that we'd really like to share with our listeners and have you explore a little bit, and that is that of ordinary universalism. And I'd love it if you could share with us what ordinary universalism means and what the practical ways we might be able to sort of integrate that into into a workplace. Sure. So the concept, I developed it in the context of interviews that I conducted in the early 90s with North African immigrants in France when I was working on the book on the working class in France and the U.S. titled The Dignity of Working Man. And I interviewed white and black workers in New York and white and North African immigrants in Paris. So I asked the North African immigrants, what makes you 
similar and different from the white workers. And many of these North African immigrants were illiterate. You know, they were just using the observation of everyday life to comment on my question, but also in the context where they were experiencing really a lot of racism in a daily basis. And these were people who had terrible jobs like cleaning a phone booth, which really smells like pee, especially in the summer, or, you know, putting asphalts on roof, you know, jobs that really no one else wants to do because they're disgusting jobs. And I remember some, several of them were really drawing on experiences from their everyday life to put point to the ways in which we're similar as human beings. So some of the comments I remember were things like, well, humans are humans. You know, we all are born after nine months in our mother's belly. We all have 10 fingers. We all have to go to the baker in the morning to buy our bread. That's a very Parisian (laughs) way of talking about this. Or we all children of God. They're good and bad people in all races. We're all equally inconsequential in the cosmos. And those statements are all true. So when it comes to celebrating and promoting dignity, we can be reminded that we all are all these things and we share a lot as human beings independently of our station in life or whatever, our age or whatever, our class. And as we were my, I didn't do the interviews with the Gen Zs myself because they're unlikely to open up to a boomer the way I would have liked them to. So I had two graduate students do these interviews and we came up with a paper which really informed the chapter on Gen in the book where we argue that they braid different themes together in talking to us about what they would like their life to be like. And we argue that they combine together a real appreciation for work and their idea of taking charge of their life to be entrepreneur and agentic and putting their life together with a real concern for mental health. So they talk about work-life balance in a way that people in my generation certainly did not. You know, we would just be ready to work like beasts and not pay attention to mental health. And then also this focus on um, ordinary universalism, like really their anger at thinking that a 25-year-old man would go out with a 17-year-old woman. Whereas when I was young, that was frequent, you know, no big deal. So their attention to power differences and, you know, issues of sexual harassment, you know, they're very, very attuned to creating an environment where people treat each other more equally. And that means also not designating people by their ethno-racial identity. You don't see this Asian man. That's just not okay. And a lot of things that for people of other generation just seem a little too, you know, I don't know, sensitive. Or uh... And then the last dimension of their identity was they really embraced the term Gen Z as a political generation that wants to say, you know, we're in the cockpits now. We're the one defining because you guys have screwed up so badly with the environment. So they think of themselves as a very political generation. And these four elements really come together for them as a collective identity and how they think of themselves as moving in the world. So the term of ordinary universalism is very important in the book because after having argued in the first two chapters that the American dream, while it brought many immigrants to the U.S., and it's not only an American story, it's also for all advanced industrial societies, it's not working anymore. So people have to come up with a different dream. And that's largely about, you know, inclusion and treating humans as humans, you know. So it's a little bit like an alternative matrix for measuring people's worth that is much more democratically accessible to everyone, not only to those who have the resources to get a college degree, as the college degree is becoming out of reach for so many people. So in that sense, the book is very much a hopeful book, you know, because it 
defines a wave toward a, a more a society that allows more people to prosper and, you know, to experience well-being without being caught in everything that they don't have. Exactly. And I think that's one of the parts that really resonated for us, Michelle, and it really feels like this resonance even with human leadership, sort of the concepts that we talk about and the way that we view, you know, leadership and the potential for change in the workplace. And I'm really excited and probably my ego is a little bit happy to hear that I feel quite aligned with Gen Z, <laughs> despite being 20 years older than them. But that really does make such incredible sense to me. And there's a lot of, you know, excitement and optimism I feel about the potency of that generation using the lessons that they're taking and the energy that they have to create a different future. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I also feel close to them. <laughs> it does feel like we're in rather safe hands moving forward with these Generation Z coming through and hopefully, you know, taking over businesses and the political atmosphere that we find ourselves in as well. There's a lot of hope. Yeah, and as you probably know, in the context of the US right now, there's a big wave mm. of unionization mm. and also mobilization of workers. And some of these strikes really have young workers at their center, uh, millennials or Gen Zs. I know that for the Amazon strike, you know, being having restroom breaks was one of their main demand, which is, if this is not about dignity, what is, you know? And I read the recent papers on what's happening in the labor movement today. And it seems that a lot of the experience that millennials and Gen Zs learned through Black Lives Matter is now being transferred to unionization in terms of, you know, this is not only about wages, it's also about dignity. So a broadening of the range of demands that workers are making that are also cultural. And the fact that, you know, for instance, with the union of the United Auto Workers strike, the fact that those employers have been bailed by the government not that long ago, and now they're piling up the profits without redistributing. One of the things that the leaders are really emphasizing as absolutely not fair, and it has really helped mobilize the workers. So, yeah, it's a similar movement here in Australia as well, Michelle. And I, it's interesting. I can only speak to my own experience, but there's been a real dismantling of the unions in the last 20 years through labor reforms, especially in Australia. And it is encouraging to see people recognizing the power of the collective and coming together once again in these unions to stand up for both basic dignities, but also better working rights. And we're seeing it here in Australia, in particular with teachers, folks in the airline industry and things like that as well. So it is very encouraging. Yeah, it's interesting that it's happening transnationally, right? It is. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, Michelle, we could spend probably the best part of a month having this conversation with you because this book is incredible and your research is so important. But what I'll do is ask sort of one final question, if I will, to leave us on a little bit of a practical note. Now, you share that there are three main avenues for building recognition through political activism and the law, through culture and media, and through our own interpersonal experiences and networks. Now, sort of focusing on the lady here, what can leaders do in business and in workplaces? who might be listening right now to drive higher recognition. I know you've touched on a few of these, but could you leave us with some really practical takeaways for leaders listening today? In a paper I published last year with two co-authors in the Harvard Business Review, we argued that, you know, paying attention to who is seated where. So who is at the center of the work environment and who's at the periphery and really trying to, you know, shed light on those who are at the periphery by basically maybe rotating, doing things that will really make those who feel that they're at the periphery, that they are fully acknowledged and brought in. And that often is, you know, older women people of color, you know, like maybe being a little bit more self-reflective and not thinking that the uh, diversity training will do the job. 
I think that really requires for employers to really be much more thoughtful about their criteria of evaluation and how they systematically favor people who are like them and penalize people who are not. So that would be an important step, I think. And that creates, that requires the humility and the willingness of, you know, self-examining yourself. I think when I've submitted papers to a management journal, they also often ask me exactly the question that you asked me concretely, what can people do? And I'm thinking at the end of the day, for me, the recipe is understanding, gaining an understanding of the life of others. And that for editors of management journals, that probably doesn't sound very concrete, but I really think that's the answer. You know, they really need to think about learning to understand others as essential. So that would be my takeaway. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Michelle. I think it's such a, you know, I think for a lot of us, we kind of want something that's almost an easy fix. And I actually think that for a lot of us, deeply understanding means going through a little bit of discomfort of acknowledging we don't know exactly what's going on for someone else. And maybe asking a question of someone that we wouldn't usually and really, you know, expanding our comfort zone in that way. So, Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for being with us at We Are Human Leaders. For me, this conversation really drove home how we behave at work, how we interact with each other in the workplace has an impact that can go really far beyond our work lives. If you're curious what human leadership can mean for your team, your organization, or even your own leadership, find out more at www.wearehumanleaders.com. See you next time.